Welcome back to Love, Life, and Legacy, the podcast dedicated to helping you navigate these hypersexualized times of ours. And today, everybody, I have to say, this was my favorite podcast ever to record because of the quality of conversation that I had. When you meet somebody of really high quality, they make an impression that lasts. And I can tell I'm going to be thinking about this conversation for a long time because it was really insightful. It just taught me a lot. But not only that, the guy himself was so cool. His name is Rabbi Daniel. He's known as the Millennial Rabbi. If you look on Instagram, he's got a huge account. He's got a lot of followers. And he just really loves God. He really wants to help people. He wants to create a situation where people can recognize their own divine value. And that seeps through every single word that he says. So in this conversation, we get into sexuality, we get into marriage, we get into mysticism. It's really, I just love it. This is, if you want to know me, if there's like some sort of test that you could take to see what is your personality, my personality is this conversation. I loved every second of this conversation and I know you will too. I beg you, listen to the entire thing from beginning to end because there's nuggets the whole way through all the way to the very end. And when I was editing this episode, there's stuff that I missed the first time around and I was having the damn conversation. So it was amazing. You're going to love it. Please enjoy Rabbi Daniel, the millennial rabbi. Let's go. All right, welcome back, everybody. I'm here with a dude. This is what I do every so often. I will have this hunch that I need something. And lately it's been, I've really needed to hear from people of different faiths, especially people who are representatives of their faith of some variety. And so it took a while to find somebody in the Muslim faith. It's taking me forever to find a Buddhist monk, to be honest. They're really hard because I think they're all in the mountains praying. And it took me a while to find a rabbi, but I'm glad I waited to find the right one because in my searching through the internet, I wanted to find somebody who's contemporary, but somebody who upheld traditions. And I think I found the perfect person who represents that nexus of kind of adhering to ancient traditions that really work, but also finding contemporary ways to make them relevant. And he's called the millennial rabbi, for goodness sake. So his name is Rabbi Daniel. I don't know how to say your last name, but please, everybody welcome him in your mind. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you. Daniel Boritz, thank you for having me on. Boritz, Boritz. Okay, cool. Thank you. So I really want to hear from you about a variety of things, especially about marriage, especially about sexuality. But I had to cut you off earlier because we were already getting into some really juicy stuff. There are so many people that have tried alternative forms of love, of sexuality, and so many people are coming to the same conclusion is that the old stuff really works. And so you brought up Aubrey Marcus and Justin Bieber. I'd love to hear your impression of that. So Aubrey Marcus is a pretty famous podcaster. He started on it, which, you know, went with Joe Rogan. And he's a very intelligent guy, really smart guy, but he's really into polyamory. And now he's married. So when, when something like that happens, how do you interpret that? Or how does that feel? Okay, so in Jewish mysticism, the way we describe our humanity is that we have an animalistic soul, an animalistic consciousness, and a divine side that are always playing against each other. And the animal side is not necessarily like evil or bad. Think of like a dog. A dog wants to sleep all day, have comfort, be taken care of, probably sleep around, do what it wants, do whatever it enjoys, and not thinking about the consequences per se. And the divine side is different. It has a more selfless side. It has a bigger vision for oneself. When I see someone like him seeing polyamory, I think it's more kind of feeding that side that seems so much who we are, especially on a masculine energy. We believe also that feminine energy is more able to focus hone in on one, whereas masculine energy by nature is what's called makif. It means it's, it wants to be everywhere. It wants to, and we see that physically, right? To make sure. a child also one egg versus billions of, of, so there's this concept that it's easier for a male to want to give in to this desire to be with everyone and everywhere. And it's at some point, you have to close the circle. You have to go from male fantasy, from potentiality, and you have to make it into actuality. And that's the feminine. The masculine is all potentiality with a lot of creativity and potential. And, and by the way, we all have both. So I'm not saying man or woman. Sure. The feminine energy is the idea of, okay, you have to make something real in this world. You can't just stay in your dream state and all these potentialities of what could be. You have to now build something real. And that's, I think, where he came to at some point and said, I can't go into his mind. Sure, but I sure, feel like sure. we, have, we, we have what he did in his life. I think we have both those desires or both those pushes in ourselves. In Jewish mysticism, do those two kind of sides of oneself 
is it meant one to dominate the other or subjugate the other, or are they meant to work in harmony? Beautiful question. The goal ultimately is to harness the powerful energy of the animalistic side to channel it in a holy direction. So not to just submit it, subjugate it fast all day and deny physicality, but to work over time to refine that side and show that side of yourself that there's actually a lot of beauty and joy to be found in the divine path, to, to almost educate that side of yourself. And if you look at the Bible, the Torah stories, that's the Kabbalistic answer to a lot of the stories, like Jacob and his brother Esau, Esau, and Jacob had to wear the clothes of Esau to get the blessing from Isaac. Spiritually, that means that the soul has to wear the clothes of the body, has to go into this world if it wants to get divine blessing. It's not enough to stay spiritual. The goal of life is to sanctify the physical, and that cannot be done any higher than in marriage, than in relationship. Wow, I like that. So that's really interesting. And I want to get into that because in my conversation with Muslim guy, the way that he described marriage in the Muslim faith was that it's more practical to keep society sane and stable, but it has nothing to do with the afterlife. So in Jewish mysticism, how important is marriage to the afterlife? We don't focus as much on the afterlife per se, but in terms of, let's say, your whole purpose on earth and yes, the afterlife and everything, it is crucial. It is probably the greatest thing you could do in terms of the first commandment, the first mitzvah of the Torah. God says to Adam and Eve, Peru Uruvu, be fruitful and multiply, which of yeah. course means not just get married, but try and build a family, have children. And... It is definitely, I think we believe something that's more than a social construct or something, but it's something that is the apex of what we can reach. It's called in Hebrew to get married. We call it kiddushin. Kiddushin means literally to sanctify. Like Friday night when we take wine for the Sabbath, for Shabbat, it's called kiddush. It's the same word. So marriage and sanctifying a holy day is the same thing. It's very holy. It's the holiest act. And sexuality, sexual connection is the highest spiritual act as well which so even Man, <laughs> this is going to be a great conversation i have that thing so in preparation for marriage do you have infrastructure within the jewish faith to prepare somebody for marriage at different stages of life or is it is everything in life preparation for that is more general or are there specific kind of phases of one's development that you have to go through? That's a great way you put it, because to answer your first question, I wouldn't say, again, so there's many levels of religiosity in Judaism, like the sure. Orthodox and then the ultra-Orthodox. Like in the ultra-Orthodox world, you've probably seen, you know, on Netflix or something, probably not fairly portrayed, actually. Yeah. But in that world, there's not so much talk, I don't think, about what's to come. It's much more the second thing that you said, which is you spend so much time in school when you're going in religious Jewish school and yeshiva and seminary for girls and yeshiva for men, it is so focused on self-improvement and, and working on yourself that I do believe it's a great preparation for what's to come in a relationship. But I wouldn't say there's a lot of talk about both in a very practical terms, you know, romance and beyond maybe some advice given by your parents or anything like that. And there's not a lot of advice given, I think, on what a marriage is going to be like. But I'm sure like any family, there's a lot of, you know, advice and discussions and things like that. Now, outside of the ultra orthodox world, I think most of the Jewish world treats it like you like anybody would. You got friends, you've got I, for one, as a rabbi, I not only officiate weddings, but I also make it mandatory when I do that, that we have some classes together leading up to it. And we okay. discuss all the like tips and tricks and wisdom from both psychology and from Jewish teachings, the bit that I know to have a successful relationship. So many do get that outside of the maybe ultra Orthodox space. And how does one find themselves with a partner? Because I know Orthodox, mm -hmm. I guess, ultra Orthodox is matchmaking is a huge part, but they're not going to the bars to meet up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about I mean, I mean, there's also secular Jewish people, right? I know plenty of them where it's just more of like a lineage thing, but you're not a practicing Jewish person. But what about somebody who is a practicing Jewish person? Do they just date to find a suitable spouse or yeah, so is it light dating? Is sex a part of dating? How does that all work? Yeah, there's all levels, right? So there's in the non-religious Jewish world, I think dating is pretty standard. Like you would find there's apps, there's Jewish dating apps. Okay. Uh, a friend of mine created a J-Swipe, which is a big Jewish app. And all the way up to, you know, in the ultra-Orthodox world, I wouldn't say there's arranged marriages. That concept of like, this is who you're marrying, I don't think that really exists today. Even in the most religious world, you're going to meet each other. It's just not going to be a very, I would say, dating process, you would think, in our day and time. You know, sure. you meet, there's no romantic, there's no touching. 
that goes on in the ultra orthodox world up until marriage anything so it's much more getting to know the person's character getting to know person that which is actually it's interesting i mean i think the answer might be somewhere in the middle right but i i think that perspective should be an interesting lesson on some level for our american culture today because absolutely you know most of us think okay i'm gonna see someone at a event or something i'll be attracted to them outwardly and then i'll get to know them later and see if we align but yeah. sometimes it gets so hot and heavy or it gets so too much before you get to know them, you get connected. You start to like maybe compromise or get enmeshed in something when you realize six months down the line, oh, you don't want to have children? Oh, we have different values. The religious Jewish approach is the opposite, right? We make sure everything's aligned in what you want out of life. The best we can, obviously. Things change. But what you want out of life, what your values are, your, your intellect, your emotional intelligence, how we connect. And then you can see if an attraction develops after that. And sure. I think both have true weight. You know, I wouldn't say, oh, th this path is the only true path. I think there is something to be said about placing emphasis on like chemistry and just how you get along in a fun way too. Uh, maybe a little bit more could be used in, sure. in the religious path. But I also think that our culture could use a bit of that approach of like, okay, before anything's going on between us, let's make sure we have us. And when you don't have that pressure of like, when's the first kiss going to be? What, what's going on? It's more getting to know the person that there's a healthy aspect to that too. And I would say for the most Orthodox Jews like me, we do have matchmakers or friends or people that are trying to set people up. We're not as often meeting people and just going out that way. It's usually a suggestion from a mutual friend. But the yeah. dating is pretty standard of like, but I will say in the Orthodox world, there's not a lot of definitely no sex before marriage. And for many, nothing really much going on in that department. In the modern Orthodox slash not Orthodox world, I can't comment. I think everyone treats it how they want to treat it. You know, like, do they live together before marriage? Some do, some don't. Maybe there's some romance going on, but it's not all sure. the way. You know, it's like a variety. And I really feel like modern culture needs to humble itself before ancient traditions. Again, not just Jewish traditions, but like my wife is from Mongolia. There was a really thousands of years of tradition of how you end up with a wife. You don't go straight to the woman. You go to their parents and you got to talk to them because they're the ones that spent all this time raising the human being. You don't just take them based on your desires of the moment. Yeah. So I believe that personally, that dating is a failed experiment. It's new. It's wreaked havoc statistically in every area in terms of like fatherlessness, in terms of just divorce, and just doesn't really work in terms of like the best optimal way to find a spouse or somebody that you would want to be for a long time. And it's creating more isolation over time. The more that we're exposed to sex through apps and also through Tinder, through like having sex and all that, the more oversexed you are, it seems like the lonelier you are because it's devoid of meaning. It's devoid of connection. So the thing that you're actually seeking intimacy is the last thing that you're actually getting because you end up playing this guarded game of you don't want to, you can't fall in love a million times. You'll, you'll just die. It's exhausting. So you yeah. just stop falling in love and you start having heartless sex. And, and you're talking about modern culture. I think in the ancient teachings from a Jewish perspective, everything's very counter, very opposite the way we look at things today. Most of us today think in my marriage, if this person's making me happy, if they're giving to me what I need, I will stay in this relationship. And Judaism says the opposite. Really? It says that the word for love in Hebrew, ahava, is connected in the middle to hav. Hav means to give. So love is not through what you're receiving. It's actually through how much you're giving to the other person. If you notice, a mother has more love for a child than vice versa. I mean, we love our moms, but there's a level to that. Having nurtured this child, giving birth to them, taking care of them when they're helpless. When you give to somebody, it actually builds more of a love for them. And this concept of like both sides took that perspective, like I'm going to do my best in my life to make this person happy in a healthy way. You don't get run over or anything like that, but in a toxic yeah. way. But I'm going to sure. do my best to make this person happy. The other one says, I'm going to do my best to make the other one happy. That, that's their focus. And, and once again, instead of in a fight thinking, what's wrong with this person? Think, what can I do differently? Like, how can I be a better person? Because a relationship is there to make you grow. And this is a whole mindset shift on life in general. Forget about what am I on earth to do? I'm on earth to grow into my fullest potential potential and to make a difference in the world as well outside of myself. But for me to grow to my fullest potential, being married is the ultimate way to do that. Having children is the ultimate way to grow into your best self. You could, I was listening to Jordan Peterson, I'm sure you listened to as well. He, he was talking about, you could not get married. You could not have children. You could, yeah, it's fine. But as a human being, you would simply be leaving on the table a massive amount of human experience. That's all. And, you, and potential within you. So there's a lot of things we don't, in our generation, we might not be like more lazy to do or more freedom, but it's just like, so many things in life. How much do I want to grow as a person and develop and feel out as a human being? 
my potential. So um, there's a lot of differences in today's culture. I would agree with you on that. And obviously we can't just live in the past, but it's kind of like, how do we take the best of the past and adapt it to our modern day? But so if that's such an important part of life, this getting married and having kids, culturally, are there mechanisms in order to help a couple that's struggling or, you know, families that might be fraying or are there certain things, oh, you need, you know, this, you need this method that comes from this teaching or this kind of thing? I mean, we definitely have a big emphasis on community. We have like a local synagogue. And even if you're not a synagogue goer, there's an idea of somebody gets sick in the community. We've got meal trips. Someone has a child. The whole community rallies together and everyone makes meals every day and drops off at the family. There's definitely a lot of that, very family oriented, obviously, but there's definitely community support. I would say having a rabbi and Rebitson, the wife, the two that you're connected to is like a definitely an emphasis, someone you can go to. Always filling your, I mean, this is huge in life. No matter if you're married, single, you have to fill up your cup. You have to every day proactively, whether it's listening to a good podcast like yours or studying a text that's, you know, Jim Rohn says inspiration or motivation is like bathing. You have to do it daily, you know, because I think we wake up on the wrong side of the bed. We In your relationship and in yourself, you're always gonna have these negative thoughts and you have to constantly, and that's what Judaism definitely emphasizes sizes is like always learn Torah every day. And that means the wisdom, the teachings, like realize what you're here for. That's why we pray so much and we learn so much is to constantly keep our minds on the right track of like why we're here. Every test, every challenge is coming for a reason. It's there to make you better. It's not there to like screw your life over and to look at every difficulty in your life as something that's that you're going to get through to take the big. So I would say there's not one like counseling service or anything like that, but it's just an emphasis on learning and values and connection to community and seeing each other every Saturday. Saturday at the synagogue and talking about with the other moms and the other dads and other people and having a support system. So not seeing your religious obligations as duty, but rather just maintenance to maintain a high level of enjoyment of life. Is the purpose enjoyment or fulfillment or what, what would you say? I would say meaning and purpose is the reason we're on earth. I think happiness is not a goal. Happiness is a byproduct of living a meaningful life. It's a quiet contentment feeling that you feel when you know you're going in the right direction in life, that you're doing what you're meant to be here for. It's not dancing on the boat in Ibiza. That's fun. That's exciting. It's joyful. But what happens when the party's over? How are you feeling? And think if you're doing those things, if you're if you're living aligned with your higher self and your and your higher purpose and you're being you're constructing a real life and 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 doing good things in the world and growing, I think you get that that that's the happiness we talk about a lot in Jesus. But you gotta have a lot of fun too and lightness as well. You know, it's got it. This is the month. And today is the new begins the new Hebrew month of Adar, which is the last month of the Hebrew calendar, and it is the month of joy. It is the month of the holiday of Purim, and you're supposed to increase in joy. So <laughs> you're supposed to by decree. Right? Commandment. You better have more fun, damn it. <laughs> take a little wine, dance a little bit, do what you got to do. But that's cool. Smile, okay. Take it till you make oh. it. So each month of the calendar has a theme? Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. And it's kind of cool because this is a leap year. So there's the 13th month in a way. There's 13 months. I was born in the wow. second in a leap year in the second Adar because basically, long story short, the Jewish calendar is lunar and solar, whereas American calendar, Western calendar is solar. Islam, it's lunar. We are a lunar calendar, but in order to balance it out, Every two to three years, there's a leap year added to make it 365, to make it even. So it comes out, your Hebrew birthday and your English birthday are different. So we have two birthdays every year. It's, it's wow. cool. <laughs> That's cool. And so what, what are some of these themes every month? So one yeah. is, this one is happiness? Yeah, I would say, you know, a lot of people are into like constellations and themes of months. They're not far off. There are the, the same like Pisces, Pisces for Adar, the fish. There is a concept of that in Kabbalah about every month. Yeah, definitely has a different energy to it. Every week does. They say the day of the week you're born, the month you're born in, the time of the day, your name that you're given, like everything has a certain tinge to your character and what you're going to be like in your life. Now, your soul transcends that. You're not limited by that, but it does affect some people are more fiery by nature or more calm. There is an idea that when you're born, the intentions your parents had when they conceived you is also talked about in the mystical writings. Really? Can we get into that a little bit? Because I've heard speeches on that about Mm. even ancient tribes taking the man and the woman apart and preparing them to conceive by getting them into a very high state so that what comes from the man and what's met by the woman is in its optimal form. So yeah. So, okay. So first of all, this is a very important topic. There's an idea in Torah and Judaism called Tarat Mishpacha, family purity. And that idea 
is every month, first of all, before a marriage, the woman goes to the mikvah. The mikvah is a body of water, it has to have living water, meaning it has to be also either rainwater or a lake or something that includes natural water. And they have to dip, fully immerse, no clothes in it. And men, but Hasidic men like me will do it as well. Like I go as often as I can. And it's like a purifying feeling. Like we do it before the Sabbath or before a holiday. Would it be akin to the notion of baptism in the Baptist church? That only happens once, but it's like a cleansing. The idea is that you're cleansed. I have zero doubt that baptism comes from mikvah. When someone converts to Judaism, always throughout history, prior to Jesus, you had to dip fully in a body of water to take on the new faith and to almost engage your soul in a new life, a new identity, reawaken that identity, uh, reveal it. So I'm pretty sure it's connected for sure. I don't know if in, in Christianity or other religions there's the idea of maybe dipping at other times, or is it just that one time and then you're done? I don't know all different sects, but sure. definitely in baptism, that's like, you're not really a Christian until you do this one thing. It's funny because in San Diego, where I grew up, our house is right next to one of the biggest Catholic churches in the city. And I have a pool and I would sometimes dip mikvah. And I'm like, if anyone looks over the fence, they're going to think that I'm baptizing over here. You know? <laughs> What's the Jew doing? You don't have to be in a special place to do this mikvah. Okay. Good question. Yeah, so men don't, because it's not really a commandment from the Torah. It's more of like a spiritual practice that is nice, but it's not a mandatory. For a woman, it is a mitzvah. It is crucial. And, and it has to be a special place that's built out, private, obviously, that has a special system in place that's able to bring live water into it. So it's not just the same water. It's very clean, beautiful. It's like this spa type place. But for Jews who live in far places, like I went, you know, right now is a war with Russia and Ukraine. I volunteered one year to go to lead a Passover service, Seder, in southeastern Ukraine, which I looked up yesterday. I think, sadly, that city that I got to know over four days, I think has been overtaken. It's in the Zaporozhia Oblast region in the southeast. And rabbis of these areas in the middle of nowhere, the first thing they do before a synagogue even, according to Jewish law, a mikvah is the most important thing. Why? Because Judaism, we're not about just worship. It's the, the purpose is the home. The purpose is the family. Yeah, we have places we pray and, you know, but the goal of life is to have schools and mikvahs and it's the family. That's where it's at. So they'll build a mikvah. Sometimes the women there have to fly every month to another city just to use the mikvah. That's how important it is wow. in Jewish law. And you can't build your own, like you can't import your own water? Or I mean, you, if you have a body of water, like an ocean or a lake, obviously that works. It would be very hard to build your own mikvah. It's very expensive too. It's a couple hundred grand usually that synagogues have to fundraise to build. But they usually want to build a very nice mikvah. If you needed the bare minimum, I'm sure you could get sure. it done for cheaper. And just to conclude that idea is though, every month, it's usually after the menstrual cycle. There's a, not only does the woman dip in the mikvah, but according to Jewish law, the men and women separate for about, it gives or take, it depends. There's a whole law to it, but let's say it's around a week. Every month, my dad has a joke. He says, how do you know that a man didn't write the Torah, didn't write the Bible? He said, these laws. Like back then, those heathens, they wouldn't have been like, yeah, separate from your wife for seven to 10 days every month. Like, no. And that's to this day, from the ancient times to today, observant Jews follow this. They not only do not sleep together during this time, but they try to avoid intimacy of all kinds. And you might think like, that's kind of like an archaic thing. But what's beautiful about it, and I think, you know, maybe, maybe resonate with this, is the idea that unrestricted approachability in a relationship can lead to an overindulgence. It's like a, an overfamiliarity with each other that, that you know, we, we can be in each other's spaces no matter what all the time. And sometimes it can be too much satiety. It'll be, uh, can lead to maybe boredom in certain ways. I'm sure that exists. And the idea of keeping it refreshing, of keeping it a discipline that, that says that, no, you have your separate space and then you can come back together as if it was the first time as well. Like you can keep that early love more. You can reawaken that more and make it more present, not just take it for granted. Like I can have you whenever I want concept. Not that that, you know, I'm sure there's respect no matter what religion you are when it comes to this, but there's a little sure. more of that emphasis of like appreciating the moment. It definitely makes sense. And the Hindu guy that I was speaking with said that it's not a rule but it's emphasized in the scriptures in Hinduism to have sex once a month. Hmm. That you should only ever have sex when it's tied to the potential of having a child, but also once a month because that energy is extremely important. Hmm. And to harvest that energy for creative means is really important and to not expel it too often. So The Kabbalists would do usually the once a week on Friday night on the Shabbat. Again, it's a holy thing, not something. So you have wine and then you get, you get nasty. <laughs> It's, it's it's sanctified, right? Because you're on the Sabbath. You're like, why on Shabbat? Like on a holy time? It's not. A yeah. mitzvah. It's a holy thing. Yeah, it's the greatest mitzvah when you when you do it with the right reason, the right intention, right um, spirit. 
So I'm wait, gonna, can we up. go over that schedule real quick? Because you were talking about the separation and then the bathing. How often does that happen? Once a month. Once a oh. month after the wife or after the woman's cycle is complete. Yes. Then she disappears and that, that takes... Doesn't disappear. She, she goes to the mikvah. She does that. Uh, sorry. She so. waits about around five days to a week, however long it takes, according to the situation, after the, the menstrual cycle. And then she'll go to the the mikvah. And after that, they can come together. It's like a special occasion. Yeah. That's really cool. I like that. I mean, schedules are just helpful in general. But I do, I do agree that the male and female desire cycle are mm-hmm. never in tandem continuum. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's not even just overindulging. It's the indulgence of expectations sometimes that is dangerous because when there's expectations unmet, because it's like, well, we haven't done it for this long and blah, blah, blah. Then it creates it's all harmony. sorts of strange feelings and resentment. So to have some sort of cosmic cycle is really cool because then your sexuality is connected to something even larger than just yourself in a very practical wow. way. That's a beautiful point. They say that, first of all, it's the most akin to the creator you can be. You're able to build, create new life. It's kind of a crazy concept. And they say that there's, you know, when you look at the Ten Commandments, the first five are between you and God, the second five between man and man, like don't murder, don't steal, don't rob, don't Mm -hmm. kidnap. The right is like believe in one God. What's interesting is that the fifth on the right column between you and God is honor your father and mother. So the sages say, what's going on here? Shouldn't it be on the other column? It says no, because your parents are partnering with God to create you. Honoring your parents is like honoring God to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. And they say there's three partners in making a child that the man gives the white of the body. So there's like symbolically like it's the bones and the white of the eye. The mother gives the redness, which is the blood. And there's a whole thing, the muscle tissue, the body is made, but the soul is given by God, is blown into the person. So there's like a partnership here. And it's also a level of transcendence. And, you know, there's a rabbi who said, great analogy. He said, imagine a mother who wants her child to eat bread. And it was probably back in the day. That was like the healthy thing, like eat bread. (laughs) Today, it would be like, you know, kale, but it says eat bread and the child doesn't want bread. So what she does is she puts some honey on top of the bread. So he'll eat the bread. So the child takes the bread and he licks off all the honey and he throws off the bread in the trash. And the analogy the rabbi was giving is that sexuality today is the reason why God placed such a power. It's the most powerful thing in the world, placed it in this department where you could have a child, where you could build a deep connection with another person. Like that's the goal. That's the bread. That's what we're trying to, the honey is to get us interested in doing it because we have that animalistic side. We have that side of us that wouldn't, you know, we don't, can't be bothered. But what we're doing in our culture, you know, we were ta- you were talking about before the podcast about how much we're inundated with all types of stuff, whether it's pornography, whether it's the type of figures that lead culture today and they, they push this lifestyle is that we're taking the honey and we're leaving the bread to go. We're leaving the deeper connection. We're leaving the ability to create new life. We're leaving all that stuff. And it's not to say that the joy and the experience is not holy and powerful on its own sake. I wouldn't go as far as to say it's the honey that's nothing, but I would say that it's not the end all be all. I like that a lot. And it resonates a lot because I put honey on my kids' breakfast this morning. (laughs) They kind of demanded it. So this brings us to the point that you brought up earlier that I really wanted to get into, which was the cosmic nature of sexuality, the spiritual and how it's the high, I think you said the highest form of spirituality or something like that. Mm, Yeah. Let's dig into this. This is important. Because it's, there is the animalistic side, obviously, it captivates you. It's about, you know, procreation, you know, spreading your seed and all this, there's that element to it. But there's also that transcendent nature, which you also touched on, which I think a lot of people miss out on, because they see it as mutually exclusive, you have your sex, and then you have your spirituality or your faith or whatever but how do you merge those two what's the significance of sexuality from a different through a different lens through a more spiritual lens i'll be honest with you i don't i I haven't gone too deep into this on podcasts before on discussion before but i'm happy to play it out with you and, and think on it because i think first of all the fact that it can create new life the fact that it's clearly we believe everything physical is rooted on a spiritual plane everything on, on a higher level, and not to think of spiritual as like ethereal. It means that there's a higher, a higher source to just like when you speak words that's rooted in your mind, and in your mind it's on a higher state, and your words don't really do justice to the thoughts in your head. We try, like when I try to share my feelings with words, it's like thirty percent or whatever it is. Everything's like that. Everything that we see and experience is rooted in a higher place, and we're only getting a glimmer of what it can be. So the fact that it's such a powerful thing means it's rooted in a very high place. If you want to go kabbalistically, there's an idea that the whole framework, the whole cosmos is 10 spherot, it's 10 divine emanations, and it's masculine and feminine, meaning that the way that the worlds are created 
we're talking pre-Big Bang, we're talking pre-atoms. The spiritual underpinnings of reality is when the masculine and feminine divine energies unite to hmm. form the world. That's what leads to procreation spiritually and the universe at large. So we are mimicking a divine experience. When we are uniting, if it's with the right intention, we are aligning ourselves with that higher procreative experience. We're drawing down a new soul into the world. Again, we're mimicking that connection between man and God, between masculine and feminine on a very high level. So I don't think it has to impinge on you know, if someone's connecting to it, focus on the other person, you're not thinking, you don't have to think about, I mean, I'm sure there are mystics that do this, but <laughs> you're, you're focusing, first of all, on the principle we said before, which is making the other person happy as well. So already you're getting out of your own ego a little bit, mm -hmm. the, the, the religious spiritual perspective there, especially the man, that's what it says, the man gratifying the woman that's talked about. That's the first thing. And then I think when I was thinking about transcendence, I was thinking about the idea of like, you're not approaching this as like a physical actor as simply chemical experience. This is something where it's almost you can't really explain it. You're experiencing something that is beyond self and beyond both of yourselves, right? Like we say two halves, you know, when you think of like soulmates, or you think about, and there is a concept of soulmates in, in Judaism that before you're born, even a voice comes out and says, this is who you're destined to be with. Now, it doesn't mean you'll necessarily, this is a whole nother topic to get into. It doesn't mean it'll always work out because there is nurture, not just nature. And if one person lives their life in one way and the other one lives their life another way and they don't align practically, it might not work out. It doesn't mean you can't have a good marriage either. And we also know there's divorce and people get married a second time and that's discussed amongst the sages what that means as well. And that's meaningful as well. It's not in a soulmate concept. But the idea here is that it's not two halves becoming a whole. It's one plus one equals one. Is that the full you and the full you can be yourselves, can still come together in a healthy, happy union and marriage. The only way that can work is if you have a higher shared spiritual goal, you have a higher reason. That's what can always unite two sides that can fully be themselves and not have to compromise who they are, but they can become one for a higher mission together. And on a side note, that's important because when we talk about people dating, they think about, okay, are we attracted to each other? Number two, do we have like a shared emotional, intellectual hobbies? Do we connect, right? That's important, those two things. But how often do couples say, do we have a shared spiritual goal? Do we both want to have guests and give charity? Do we both want to what type of kids do we want to raise? What kind of impact do we want to have on the world? That's like a third element that's not really thought about too much. But that is this idea that you're coming together to build each other up to become a greater for a greater cause than yourselves. Mm. And of course, in union, the ability to bring a new life into the world is the ultimate godly thing you can do. And I think I don't want to get to but I mean, think about like the concept of the highest highest place within sexual connection, like an orgasm, something like that. It, I think it's the it's the idea of like reaching a place of transcendence. It's the one human, one of the human acts that you're reaching something that's beyond self. You're almost like it's not in your intellect. It's not in something you can like understand. And that's because it's rooted spiritually in a very, very high place. It's a lot of good stuff. So the idea that when a man and woman come together, when they're fully themselves, when they, you know, fully incarnate as a true man, true woman, that when they, when they birth anything, whether it's actual children or ideas or, you know, collaborative, whatever comes from that couple, would that be the dominion, like the third great blessing There's you know, be fruitful, multiply, and then have dominion. Would that be would you consider that to be in the realm of dominion? Or is I don't there... know if in English we translate it dominion, so I'm not sure exactly which aspect you're referring to. I will say, so one thing it talks about in Kabbalah is that, I don't freak people out, but it's also kind of meaningful, is that even if you don't have children, coming together, sexual union creates souls above it. It does have a powerful impact and is a mitzvah regardless. Because you could ask a question, do religious Jews sleep together if your wife's pregnant? You're not trying to have a child. Absolutely you do, because it's not just about that union is holy in and of itself. It's special in and of itself. And it's a mitzvah. It's a good deed to make someone happy, to make your spouse feel good and to feel love. And like all that stuff is part of, it's all good. It's all, and that, that applies giving them a compliment and making them feel good to being intimate. Like all this, all of it plays into, it's all good deeds, it's all holy. So. Okay. And so we were just talking about holy stuff. What about the opposite? So how, how is the Jewish community at large, dealing with pornography and this kind of modern manifestation of dysfunction through right. sex. In the Orthodox world that I'm in, it's a So could I just clarify that? Sure. Because in my ignorance, don't understand what Kabbalah is. Is that is that a sect of... Yeah, right. 
Yeah. Kabbalah is, is simply another aspect of Torah. So we believe there's four levels of Torah study. There's the practical laws. There's the Bible store, everything. And then the mystical side is just another element of it. But in the Hasidic path, which is began in the 1700s with the Baal Shem Tov, I kind of like that the most. And the Hasidic path is very focused on joy, immersing in the mikvah for men, like learning mystical studies, reaching out, doing outreach. It's a certain style of Orthodox Judaism. So I'm very into the mystical side, but but it's not necessarily so common. You won't necessarily you won't hear a lot of Kabbalistic stuff necessarily in other circles. And I think every every strength every aspect of Judaism approaches these things differently. But I will say in the religious Jewish world, it's probably kind of across the board, something your question in terms of it's a tough one because a lot of them don't have they don't go to movies, they don't do any of this, a lot to do with the secular world at all. So if there's anything going on with in that world, which I'm sure people have access to internet and there's ways to I think it's it's such a faux pas. It's not really talked about like it should be and addressed properly. And just something I was thinking about, like trying to approach these issues from another angle. So like, I don't know how many people would be interested in their spiritual growth, but like what I find interesting for myself is that one of the issues with pornography is that the goal of someone who's trying to grow spiritually, one of the things is the healthiness of your mind and your imagination, the ability to, you and I were talking before the podcast about the Hebrew letters and I teach, I lead meditations. And a lot of people today, you know, they like to meditate, they like to grow in that way. And I think, you know, something like seeing imagery and seeing it messes with that side of yourself. So nothing to do even with like, you know, the issues that other the toxic issues regarding it, but just that ability to have a clear mind and being able to grow in that way. That's something that resonated with me about why it's not good. And yeah, it's basically, I think, talking in a mature way with people. I don't think you're gonna be able to convince like some 17 year old kid that like, oh, this is don't enjoy this or it's not good. I think it's more coming from like a more mature approach. Be like, look, this is going to affect your real relationships that you want to have is just going to be great. You're excited to have a girlfriend, and everything. Yes. So you should know that this is not reality. This is not something that these are actors, these are people or whatever it is. It could even be just TV shows we watch, right? That are like MTV back when we were growing up or like one of these things spring break. Like this is not, I think men to look at a woman as a, as not even just like a soul and as, but as a human being like you and not getting stuck on the outer surface. Cause I think a soul and a body, we can get into this in Adam and Eve and how this came to be spiritually, but it used to be that you could see someone's inner being more. And today, we simply, it takes time to get there. So we're always going to be as a man, especially, but everyone is going to be taken by the outer appearance. And we have to work to realize that there's something more going on there. There's a soul behind the body and not to get stuck on the outer side. So as a rabbi, have you ever had to counsel or not had to, but have you ever counseled anybody with some addiction to porn or where it was getting in the way of their marriage or anything like that? As a young rabbi, I, I know a lot of friends who are older rabbis that have. I myself haven't had that too much. I have had people come to me and talk to me about it. And I try I try in addiction in general and anything someone's going through, I just try to be human with them. I, I think on this podcast, I maybe went a little spiritual on you, mystical on you. But for the most part, I try a very, I understand the temptation. I understand it's not easy and take little steps, you know, like also have some compassion for yourself. I mean, no one had to deal with this stuff. You know, I have a, a rabbi in Jerusalem. He told me once, 150 years ago, to do a sin, you had to prepare for a month. You know, <laughs> you'd have to like save money. You have to buy a ticket to the main town. You have to get, you'd have for a train. You'd have to get a ticket to like the local play theater. And maybe yeah. you'd see like a woman more, more like risque. That was like the, today you just turn on your phone. So it's like, have some compassion for the difficult time we live in spiritually. It's very inundated. And if you're able to, you're somebody who does things you don't like in any addiction, and you're able to cut it down a little bit, you're able to say no once, like take pride in that, like that ownership that you're able to do that. And you're going to fall a lot in life. And I believe I came to the conclusion because I was, I used to be very much a perfectionist. I probably still am in my spiritual service. And I realized God doesn't want us to be perfect. Life isn't about perfection. It's about getting up after you fall every time. That's it. Just keep going. Be a warrior, go on the path, go on the journey, and just keep at it. And that's all you can be asked to do. That's it. Don't give up. I like it. I don't know if you can do this in a, in a short amount of time because you touched on it and I could see it's loaded. But you were talking about Adam and Eve. In your viewpoint, was sexuality a part of that dynamic, the fall and the symbolism of the apple and all this? Yeah, so all sages agree that it was not an apple. That's first off. It was, uh, <laughs> some say it was it was grapes, and if they would have waited, they till it was Friday afternoon till the Sabbath came in, they would have squeezed the grapes, made kiddush, made brought in Shabbat, and it would have been a messianic redeemed world. It would have been over. Clearly, 
it was it wasn't meant to be that way. I think it was kind of a setup job. It was meant to happen this way. And some say that it wasn't a snake. It wasn't. There's was an idea that it it was sexually involved. It wasn't eating from a fruit. That's symbolic. It was something sexual. But what interests me in connection to the conversation we were just having, just to elaborate, is that the word for light in Hebrew is the same word as a word as the same word as for skin, but with a different letter for the same sound. So Aleph and Ayin both say ah, but one spells light and one spells skin. And there's an idea mystically that before they ate, before they fell from their place, they had skin of light, meaning that if you looked at them, you would see soul, you would see their inner reality. And if you really like worked hard to try to like, you'd notice the body, you'd notice the outer reality. And post sin, that consciousness that we have now in the world is the opposite, that we are Everything is seen physical first, and it takes a while to realize that there's a spiritual side behind it. And that's why they were naked, because the reason why we get ashamed or we get embarrassed if we're naked, most people do, is because somewhere deep down, we know that this is not only what we are. When you're looking at me, you're not seeing the full me. If you're able to see like everything about me, it's another story. But the idea is that they weren't ashamed because you didn't see body. You saw the totality of the greatness of what they were and they weren't ashamed at all. And it was fine. You could walk around naked that way. It wasn't, you know, the word for garment or, or clothing or covering in Hebrew, beged, is the same as boged, which means traitorous. It's traitorous to the true identity of what's inside. Clothing today, though, the clothing on top of the clothing of the body is actually a positive thing by dressing modestly because you can show a bit of the regality of the special quality of your inner self. You're not just saying that I'm this. And I just think it's an important concept to think about when we were so inundated physically to understand how things shifted and why it's important to be a modest person and to have discretion. Because if you're a girl or anybody and you're showing off everything you've got and you're being open in that way, I don't think any girl, most girls want to be considered by the man as just that, but that's what happens. That is the man's natural nature is to see is if I get it all right now, I see everything that you are right now. Like that's I'm taking it's no, you're not kidding at all the person, but it's easy to get distracted that way. And if you're able in Judaism, at least we're very much into like modesty and also taking time to be together because you have to understand what you're dealing with here. This is a person, a soul. So what you were just saying makes a lot of sense from the perspective of when you, you or I, right, when we're in a good, healthy, spiritual state, we're not objectifying women because we're looking at something more, right? right? That glowing, that, that light. But when we're kind of low and we're down and out, that's typically when people struggle the most and when they start mm -hmm. to objectify people the most because yeah. they're grasping at anything that resembles like somebody hungry that has lost their standard, they'll eat anything. You know, like a starving person in the desert will eat anything. And similarly, like when people's souls are starving, they'll kind of objectify anything just for some semblance of seeming joy. Every, so true. And everything physical has a taste of the spiritual. It has in it divine sparks. And, and therefore we fool ourselves. That animalistic side of ourselves fools us into thinking you are going to feel, you're going to feel like you've made it if you just have that cake or you just have, you just do that thing sexually. Like you will, but your soul doesn't get fed that way. So the body's getting fed and you still feel empty because you've only fed the outer aspect of yourself. And that I think you're 100% right. Yeah, this is awesome. Do you have anything that we, I didn't put on the table that you would love to address that you think people, it would be very helpful for people to know or to understand a con or a concept that you've been chewing on lately that that's really exciting to you? And not just in this space or? Uh, yeah, sure. If there's something that is just really shouting at you, like this idea uh, that you can't let go of. There's so much. You know, a big thing in the, you know, you and I were talking about the new age world. This idea, there's, there's a lot about like manifestation and you can kind of create your own destiny and your own reality. And I was, you know, I've been playing with that for a while. And I think the, the Jewish perspective is true. You can, but you're co-creating reality with the divine. So having a positive mindset, like there's a new month starting today, like understanding that good is coming your way. What's prayer? Prayer is simply reaching a higher state, connecting to your source and asking, bringing down, like the whole purpose of prayer and spiritual service is not to change God's mind, it's to change ourselves. The more we can change and become a new vessel, think about a cup that's broken. You can become the cup, you can receive the bounty that's coming our way. So all the challenges that are coming to us in our lives are simply helping is meant to make us reflect and write our own ship. If we can write our own ship, if we can live the way we're meant to live, then those challenges don't have to come. I was even this week was, was delving into the idea that you know who it is that's sending you all the struggles and all the issues in your life. It's yourself. 
there's an idea that we have five levels to our soul, five levels to our consciousness, and your higher aspect of your soul is the one that you tap into when you meditate, when you once in a while have a lucid clarity, when you feel something higher. That's yourself. That's you're accessing your full potential. The mystics say that just like a foot in your shoe is barely any part of your body, the amount of your soul energy that you're aware of is like the foot in the shoe. It's like a glimmer. And we have so much potential inside, so much we can find within ourselves. We don't have to get from outside from anybody else, just to be with yourself and to delve within and to realize that, like they say, heaven and hell and all these ideas, like there's a perspective that you judge yourself. It's simply, hell is nothing. It's not fire and brimstone. Hell is simply the concept that in the next world, you see your life and your higher self says, did you live up to your potential? Was that that as good as you could have become? And it's simply that feeling you have when you didn't. That shame is what we call hell. I agree. Yeah. It seems like hell is a cold place where you're disconnected. You're disconnected from others, disconnected from your potential, rather than a hot place that it's often, (laughs) you know, portrayed as. And so in this five stages of self, that highest self, how much time are we meant to dwell in that highest state? Are we perpetually? Or are we meant to just plug into that, get charged up and then go back down to four? And then- Yeah, that's usually what we do, what you just said. But I think like your earlier question about the animal soul and the divine soul and about the goal is to harmonize and harness and connect them. It's the same thing here is you want to have as much of your higher self kind of channeling through your everyday consciousness as possible. You want to merge them a little bit. And the more you work, like the word for faith in Hebrew, emunah, is the same as an amon, which is an artisan, like a craftsman. Like you imagine back in the day in the medieval times, like a sword or something. craftsman is hitting on something again and again and again. Faith is not really a word in Hebrew. The idea of emunah is the idea of training yourself to look at the beautiful world around you and recognize that there's a creator behind it. It's to continually work on your consciousness to recognize that what you see is not what you get, that there's something more, something higher. And that if you do it enough, you'll start to have your low level consciousness be inundated with that. Just the goal would be that when something bad happens to you, you miss the train. It's like, how long does it take for me to course correct and to realize that this actually happened for a reason? A day, a week? Am I going to be angry for a long time? The more I work on that faith, the more I'm working on myself, the more immediate it comes that course correction. Be like, you know what? I understand this happening for a reason. It's for my best. And that's huge in relationships too and everything that we do to recognize that things coming your way is not what we call the Dafka principle. A lot of us think it's happening Like I hit that red light three in a row because it's like out to get me. No one's out to get you. No one is doing something annoying to you. They're going through their own stuff. And in a relationship, she or he is going, they had a tough day at work. Most people are not out to be mean. They're going through their own stuff. Get out of your own ego and recognize it and give the benefit of the doubt and don't take everything personally. Recognize that just like you, and I'll just leave maybe with one thought that I think whenever I, this is from my mother's very wise. She, she taught someone this idea in a marriage and I've shared it and most people I talk to really connect with it. I think you would come home from work and with the stress of work, and it would bring it into the house. It would became, it wasn't a division. Many, many of us have been working from home over COVID, even more so, but like the division between our lives and our homes. And she said, when you get home, I don't want you to enter your house. And in Jewish homes, we have the mezuzah on the doorpost. So you have to yeah, kiss, yeah, yeah. To remind yourself when you walk in that, that, that God protects you both ways. But you stop before you enter the house. And I want you to take a pause, take a breath and say, I'm now making a division here. There's a sanctity of my home. There's my family. This is my wife, this is my relationship. I am not going to bring in all the stuff that I have and the way I deal with my staff and that type of personality that I am. I'm not bringing that into this. This is a holy place. The mm-hmm. home is the holiest place on earth. And the people used to come to my home. My parents have been married happily for 40 plus years, and they're still as into each other as they were at the beginning. And nobody wants to leave. So a lot of people think, oh, it must be the architecture. It must be the beauty <laughs> of the living room. It must be that. I'm like, no, there's a what we call in Hebrew shalom bayit which means peace in the home. When there's a harmonious relationship, when good deeds are done in the home, when you have guests. I grew up with 20, 30 guests coming Friday night for dinner, big meals, people sleeping over that needed a place to stay. When your home and your relationship is harmonious, is loving, you're trying to create a good atmosphere, you're you're focused on that, you're not fighting in front of your children as much, you're trying to create that as best you can. I think it creates this divine presence in your home and is blessed. I love it. Yeah, I love that. I know a guy who always invites God into his home every day with his wife. They just say, hey, we'd love to have you. <laughs> you know, like we want to do everything we can to make you feel welcome. Yeah. Uh, just that that posturing before God is, I think, really important. That'd be like, are you invited into my mind right now? You brought that up in my imagination. Are you welcome there? Or have I created an imagination where you're kind of completely disoriented because there's nothing that resembles you in my mind, in my heart, in my home? I love mm-hmm. it. I really love it. 
So anyway, I think we've touched on everything in the universe in this conversation. And I think honestly, it was extremely helpful for me. And I know it's going to be helpful for everybody out there. This is really important stuff. We went all over the board, but I appreciate it. I appreciate your willingness to meet up and your willingness to have these conversations. And thank you so much. Thank you for having me and for creating such a beautiful platform and podcast and opening for discussion, conversation like this that we really, really need in our time. Hello, everybody. Andrew Love here. And I just wanted to add one more point. High Noon is a nonprofit organization, and we are run by donations. And although we've been doing okay, thanks to the massive generosity of our founders, the Wolfenbergers, we want to expand higher, 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 higher. We want to make a global impact. We want to reach every family. We want to change the culture. And for that to happen, we're going to need a lot of volunteers and a lot of staff. That's just the reality. It takes money to travel. It takes money to do a lot of the things we do. And we want to let you be a part of this growth. And so what we've created is a donors club, which is a $10 a month club. And when you join, you get a t-shirt mailed to your door. You can get some exclusive content. And we also have some really good goodies for our tribe of people who are part of the donors club that we're going to talk about in the coming months. So I just wanted to invite you to be one of these people. Everybody can afford $10 a month. It's just a matter of whether it's a priority. So if you feel High Noon has impacted you positively or your family or somebody you know, please consider donating. I don't want you to give any money unless you really, really want to. But if you do want to, I encourage you to really, really donate. So $10 a month is, I don't know, a cat a month. I don't know how to measure it. It's a giant hamburger and french fries a month that you can sacrifice in order to help this world become a more habitable, more enjoyable, more connected, more loving place. So please consider joining our Donors Club. It's just $10 a month. We look forward to seeing you on the inside of our secret society for donors. Have a good day, everybody.